When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you'd like a copy of my best-selling first book, Tales of a First-Round Nothing, head on over to ecwpress.com. If you'd like a copy of my second book, Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, head on over to www.flankerpress.com. If you'd like either copy personalized, just add a note. Thanks for listening to my podcast, and happy reading. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode 162B of Tales with TR, now available on YouTube under the Hockey Podcast Network. Subscribe now, THPN, and follow along with Tales of TR, Tales with TR, and many other awesome podcasts. Let's get right into it. I'm excited about today, folks, because my next guest is a Canadian broadcasting legend who grew up in Oshawa, Ontario, and got his start in Toronto in the early 1980s while attending Ryerson University. Shortly after graduating, he became the voice of his hometown, Oshawa Generals, which eventually led to gigs with Hockey Night in Canada and the then-new all-sports cable channel, TSN. After making a name for himself with TSN, this articulate sports fan and commentator took on a plethora of assignments that included covering the IIHF, the Vanier Cup, the Spengler Cup, six Olympics, just to name a few. These days, the living legend is as busy as ever, and on top of freelancing, writing Canadian, writing children's books, he also hosts a Beatles-centric podcast called The Walrus Was Paul, which is not only one of my favorites, but is proof there's more to this well-accomplished man than meets the eye. His knowledge apparently knows no bounds, and we're excited to have him here today. He is a bodacious broadcaster, a great guy, an amazing announcer, a hell of a host, an awesome author, cool Canadian. He's a sports-minded man and a Beatles fan. The sports thing we knew, but he's a music guy too. He lived in England on the Rome, but Canada is home. He likes coral reefs and covered the Leafs. He called my goal and once worked for Bob Cole. Here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. Folks, when it rains at a Jays game, it usually means the dome is stuck. Please welcome to the show, the one and only Paul Romanuk. Paul, <laughs> how are you doing? And thanks for being here today. Oh, what a great intro. That's, uh, <laughs> how do you follow that up? That's uh, some, uh, some great writing, my friend. Excellent. It's great to be here. Oh, man. You know, 
for years. And when I say that, folks, that uh, a lot of people, I made some posts, but I had a goal in junior in my draft year, which I think really elevated me to end up going eighth overall. I went coast to coast with the most, as you pull it, put it, and that's the first time Paul Romana came into my life. It was 1995. I was 18 years old, freshly just turned 18, and had a big goal in junior, and you called it. And it's been a long time coming, my friend. Hey, that's uh, I'm I'm glad it was a good call. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> I remember those junior days fondly. Uh, I saw a lot of uh, great young players, and you would be one of them. And uh, it was really neat at that time because my sort of play-by-play career was uh, was was rising uh, through, yeah. through the TSN ranks, and it coincided with a lot of guys whose. Uh, careers I saw at the start when they were in junior hockey. I then crossed paths with them in the late 90s and the early 2000s when they'd gone on to be NHL players. So it was really, really nice. Yeah, man. And uh, God, there's just, uh, you're a very interesting guy that's accomplished a lot. Now, I want to know, growing up, I know you're into Danny Gallivan. Um, were you sports first? Like, were you... Were your heroes commentators or actual athletes? Because I'll tell you, I ended up being like a writer of sorts. I mean, I got a couple of books, I guess, you know, memoirs. But I always knew that I'd do something. Like, I was as into Red Fisher as I was Maurice Richard. I, I mean it. I was very, I read everything, and I, in, my goal was to do one or the other. How about you? Well, it's 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 interesting hearing your story uh, because I think you'd make an assumption go well. You know, uh, the guy played in the NHL. He, he was he was pushing towards that, and uh, so he was solely focused on being a hockey player. So all his heroes were hockey stars, and it's interesting to hear that you looked mm-hmm. up to the authors. Likewise with me, um, you know, I, I did want to be a play by play guy, and I looked up to somebody like Danny Gallivan, who to me was every bit as big a part of those Montreal Canadiens uh, mm. teams in the 70s, which was my sort of golden era of sports, uh, as Guy Lafleur, Steve Shutt, Doug Risebrow, Ken Dryden, so on and so forth. But that said, I mean, I was, yes, I'd like to listen to Danny Gallivan. I like to listen to Brian McFarlane and Dave Hodge and the other sort of icons of the time. But first and foremost, as a kid, I wanted to be Guy Lafleur. You know, I wanted to be Doug Risebrow. I wanted to be Bob Gainey. They were my they were my heroes as a kid for sure. And growing up in Oshawa, I guess you were never stuck for some. Like, did you go to the junior games? I don't think oh, Oshawa's. Yeah. You know, they go so far back, and they've had so many legends. Uh, you know, was that a thing? You going to oh, junior games? Yes, absolutely. Uh, their home games were Sundays. Sunday night was the home game back then for the generals. And uh, I can remember with my buddy uh, saving our money to buy half season tickets. We couldn't afford the full season. So we would get the half of the season after Christmas and sit in the yellows, which were the cheap seats at the old Oshawa Civic Auditorium. And we'd go down at Sunday on Sunday and we'd watch them play at the, at the old Civic Auditorium. Some of the guys who I saw as a kid, uh, thinking about it, they had some bad teams. Uh, Doug Keens was uh, the goalie on one of those teams. Horrible team in front of him. Uh, Sherry Basson was a coach yeah. and then later the general manager. Uh, then as a kid, I saw Rick Middleton play for the Oshawa Generals. Um, I was a, a guy wow. named, uh, you know, um, 
Bill Lawhead, uh, Tom McCarthy, you know, they were some of the guys who went on to the NHL. Uh, and then later on, when I was calling the games, John Stevens was uh, was one of the players on the Generals, was captain of the team. Jimmy Pack, who went on to win a Stanley Cup with the Pittsburgh yeah. Penguins. Uh, Don Biggs, who had an outstanding career in the American Hockey League. But yeah, went to all the games as a kid. So did you call any of the games when Lindros was there? Uh, I called those games on TSN. Uh, by okay. that time, I had moved on from uh, the last season that I called Oshawa Generals games was the 1986-87 season. And the last thing I called was the 1987 Memorial Cup in Oshawa. Um, and then after that... God. I, I sort of went the TV route and I was lucky enough to sort of circle back on TSN doing the junior game of the week, CHL Sunday, as we call yeah. it. Uh, and that's where I called a ton of Eric Lindros games. Okay. Uh, that must have been special. I guess you found yourself back full circle and you're in your hometown doing uh, the games of a future superstar. So, but I want to go backwards a little bit here because I guess in 1981 you head in, so you're fresh out of high school. You're at Ryerson. Obviously, you have a huge sports knowledge and appreciation for it. And if you're at Ryerson, you're branching that out in broadcasting journalism. You're learning about a lot of things. I've listened to The Walrus Was Paul. So I, I could have you on five times, but I, hopefully we can do... Because I know people out there, most people listen to my podcast are either doing it through Shorzy or they see me on Spitting Chicklets or they just are Montreal fans or they're fans of my uh, my podcast. But I'm not, I, And I know a lot of them are into music because I talk about it all the time and I still have listeners. And they know that I'm a Beatles fan. Like I said, my daughter's name is Penny Lane. So we will get into it, but I think a lot of people are fascinated by your story, as am I. So before we get into you moving into Ryerson, I would just like to know, because of your vast knowledge of the Beatles and music in general, was that, that must have been a huge thing. I've listened to it. Like you're, you, you, you know a lot about, and not just from interviewing, like dates, um, very important uh, things in the Beatles history, not only the Beatles, but you can't talk about the Beatles without talking about music at the time and how it was impacted and how everything impacted it. And you seem to have a great knowledge of pop culture. And I mean, you're born, you, you lived it, but you were a kid. So it's not like you were experiencing this when you were three years old and going, oh, there's the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. So <laughs> where, before you, before you make the move to Ryerson, but I want to know growing up, did, did your dad have records or, or how did you get into it so impressively well i suspect this might have been the case for a lot of people in in my situation you're absolutely right the beatles were you know all but done and dusted uh by the time i was 10 years old uh right i turned 10 years old in 1971 and uh you know it, it Anybody who knows anything about the Beatles, it was done. Let It Be had come out. Uh, the band were starting to go off in their other directions. So you're right. I, I didn't live the Beatles. I had a very, very good friend. He's still a buddy of mine. Uh, we met when we were about eight years old, and, and uh, he had an older brother. And his older brother was into the Beatles and a lot of the, the British bands at the time. Cream was another big band at the time, a guitarist yeah. named Rory Gallagher. Uh, so, and this, this, guy, this guy's name was Sam. His, Sam uh, was my buddy Tim's older brother. And he also had uh, a really good stereo. Uh, I still remember it. It was a Morant stereo with EPI speakers, which, you know, wow. component set, which was big at the time. So that was where I got introduced to 
how good music could sound on a good stereo because we had a crap stereo at our house. Uh, and, uh, and also, more importantly, the music, including the Beatles. And that was my discovery of the Beatles and, uh, you know, like tens of millions, hundreds of millions, uh, if not billions of others. The first time I heard them, I was captivated. Uh, it was like, wow, these guys are, are great. And the, I, I still have a memory as a, as a little boy where hearing the songs and they weren't entirely new. So I had probably heard them on the radio because my mom always had the radio on. So songs like Penny Lane uh, and, uh, and Eleanor Rigby and Hello Goodbye and songs that were hits on the radio back in the 60s. And it was so I was, I was kind of rediscovering them and it just sort of went from there. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's something that's like you, right? The, the Beatles bring a lot of joy to people's lives and uh, I'm no exception. Listening to their music, it, it cheers you up. It makes you think. It does so many things, and uh, that's that was my my window onto it was my buddy's older brother. Interesting. I think that's the first thing that got me when I was real young was I, it was obviously subconscious, and there was all kinds of music around, but I, I didn't know what a good guitar riff was. I didn't know, but the Beatles' message was usually love and positivity. Usually, I mean, I know they're deeper than that, but you know, it was it was easy for a kid to get into, and then as you got into it and grew. I got into them when I was like six, right? Octopus's Garden, Yellow Submarine. But then, so you've always got those on, and then you get a little bit older, and, and you start to appreciate little layers of the onion. Until by the time you're 13 or 14 and 15, you're going, oh, wow. Like, and then you're 18, 19, and you're going, okay, that's why Re Revolver and Rubber Soul are so good. And then, you know, and I can go on, but I won't. Maybe at the end. Anyway, I love that you mentioned that because exactly, I, I think they're a, they're a band, an entity, that's easy to get into when you're younger, whereas some great acts like maybe Nirvana aren't. You, you know what I mean? Like, they're great. I lived that. I was playing in Tri-City when the grunge movement was happening outside of Seattle. What a time. But no not, kidding. You know? I mean, it was so interesting. Anyway, I'll get into all that later. You go in. 1981, you're going into... Did you graduate, by the way? Uh, I assume you did. Or yeah, did I you, did, yeah. You, because I'm asking because you got so many jobs right off the hop. Now, you end up working for the Toronto Marlboros. You're working for Land, like Landsberg. You're doing some st start with the generals. Um, you know, this is the 80s. Uh, you end up working with Harry Neal and Bob Cole on Hockey Night in Canada. The TSN stuff, um, Leafs TV eventually. Like, all these things are something that someone from Oshawa, like not only are you getting jobs, you're getting them with some of the favorite teams, I'm, I'm guessing, or at least most important teams in your life. So was that planned? Would you have gone to Ryerson and said, hey, if I move to Houston to cover the Arrows, that's great. It's a good, it's a good time and maybe I'll move. I mean, because you ended up later in life moving to London. Or was your goal, God damn it, I'm going to be one of the best broadcasters in Toronto and I'm going to cover the Leafs someday. Um, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, when I first went to Ryerson, um, uh, you know, like a lot of people, uh, my obsession with sports had dropped off a little bit in, in my latter high school years. Uh, I, you know, uh, I discovered, uh, discovered girls, uh, for a start. Uh, I got into, really got into, uh, theater at high school and I was in the, the high school theater company and, and it, you know, it, so that was a lot of fun and I was really, really into music. I still follow sports and I loved it, but I, it was wasn't, I wouldn't say it was as big as, as an obsession as when I was 13, 14 years old. So when I went to Ryerson, I actually, my first thought was I'd like to be 
of an on-air radio guy talking about music. That's that was sort of that's what I had in mind. I went with an open mind because I learned so many things. And but but if you said what do you want to do, I would have said I, I want to be a DJ. Uh, now now that's laughable because you know radio in in Canada by and large is a is a disaster area. Uh, but that was back in the day when they still allowed uh, a lot of the the DJs, the hosts to curate their own shows and they would actually talk about the music. And that's what I wanted to do. However, uh, like a lot of things in life, as you know, Terry, right? Uh, you have a rough plan and then you react to what, what happens. And what yeah. happened was I went down to the campus radio station probably the first week of school and said, can I do a show? And I got a radio show. It was a Friday night show at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. Uh, Paul's Friday night party. (laughs) So I was on playing music. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, And then they needed somebody to help out on the Toronto Marley games because the, the campus station at the time was doing uh, one Marley game a week and it was on, I want to say it was on Saturday afternoons. Michael Landsberg was the play-by-play guy. So I was hooked up with Michael and, huh. and in essence, I was sort of his engineer. So I would carry the soundboard up to the broadcast booth and monitor the levels and basically sort of help Michael. Michael, for reasons best known to Michael, uh, after a few weeks said, I don't want to do this anymore. And they needed a play-by-play announcer. So I had done play-by-play like most aspiring play-by-play guys in front of the TV with the sound turned down when we were playing road hockey. So they needed a play. Yeah, exactly. So they needed a guy and I said, well, I can do play-by-play. Why not? And that was my hard right into becoming a sports guy as opposed to a music guy. And, uh, you know, it was a great decision. And I, I had all these tremendous experiences. But it's just that that's how it sort of came to be was, uh, it, you know, I took over for Michael Landsberg. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Sherry Basson, who was then the general manager of the Oshawa Generals, heard me on the radio doing a Marley game. Somebody mentioned to him that I was from Oshawa, and he said, well, if he's from Oshawa, why the hell isn't he working on our games? So then I got a call from the Oshawa radio station saying, hey, do you want to come and work on our games? And I came in as a sort of color guy with a gentleman named Mike Inglis, and I I did games as time would permit uh, around my school schedule. Uh, And then after I finished school, one of my first gigs was at this Oshawa radio station. Mike left and I became the voice of the Oshawa general. So that's sort of how, that's a long answer to your short question. I, I like the long answer though, because the dots aren't always connected and there's so much information online, but a lot is, uh, you know, it's just, um, it's not deep, it's not elaborate, and I'd rather hear it from the person that experienced it. So, so please, long answers all the way. <laughs> and I want to know something then. It's 1981, 82, you're getting your start, you're in Ryerson. Toronto, to me, and I've experienced it, I guess, for 20 years, when we went in and out of there with the Canadians, I, I did play three games in Maple Leafs Garden. I fought Domi three times, if you can believe it. Um, but it was in and out. It was the experience, all my experience was, I can't believe I'm in the Maple Leaf Gardens. But then I got to go and, you know, through the film industry and going back and, you know, when I started to train and do some hockey camps and spend some time in Toronto. And I got to know people like Jim Cuddy and his son, Devin, Dave Bettini. I, I, I kind of, I kind of, I really absorbed the, uh, 
the arts scene, more music than anything, hanging out at some legendary bars and restaurants, uh, you know, down around, usually Queen King West, Young Street. That's normally where I would be. So I know that there's a vibe there now, a great vibe. I love it. Um, lots of live music, lots of live entertainment, stand-up comedy, what, what have you. You're coming out at the peak, I think, again, I lived it like you lived the Beatles, but punk, I know, was coming in around that time and was very important. And, you know, in the scheme of things, when you take music and pop culture at the time, and disco was on its way out, but it was there. So were you, was Toronto a scene when you were there that included a lot of disco and punk? The disco, I don't remember so much. My would have been a memory bit before that, right? Yeah, yeah. The disco, the, when disco went, it really went. Yeah, uh, yeah, my memory is more, and especially it was reflected in the music we played at CKLN. Uh, it would have been called at the time, you know, alternatives. So I played a lot of stuff from uh, the Jam, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Paul Weller's band at the time, and later the Style Council. Uh, Yazoo was an alternative band. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other, uh, believe it or not, Culture Club, when their first album came out, uh, Kissing to be Clever, that was an alternative band. It was this, you know, this weird guy sort of dressed up like a woman, uh, and he had this good voice and they were not a mainstream band until later. So we played stuff by the Culture Club, uh, band called B Movie. So it, it was sort of that the start of what came to be known as as new wave alternative, and that was the scene I was into. Ultravox was another big band at the time. Okay, uh, yeah, I know there. So, so you're getting you're getting stuff like that um, that you know that was that was starting to emerge when I was at school, and I can remember going to uh, you know there was a club around the corner called Nuts and Bolts, uh, and that was like a they played that kind of music, and the you know it was dancing and stuff like that. Live bands, uh, you know, the bands that came to play at the school, you still had a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of what we call rock bands. It was the punk thing for me when I was at Ryerson. Uh, I, I think I just missed it. You know, the Sex Pistols yeah. were done. Uh, the Clash were big. You know, London Calling had, had come out. That's my favorite. Uh, that's my favorite punk album. Yeah, but then even but even the Clash, right? When you when you look at London Calling, which is a spectacular album, they've started to yeah. to transition from punk into You're sort exactly. of ska. There's a lot yeah. of ska, uh, black Jamaican, you know, kind of style feeling on that on that album, and then they kind of completed it with their next album uh, called Sandinista. So that changed. So the sort of hardcore. Uh, spitting at the audience, like really nasty punk stuff. That was that was pretty much over by the time I I started at uh, at Ryerson. That's interesting. I had uh, my dad on a couple of weeks ago. I have mom once in a while. He's a big into music. I mean, I, I got into it. He's got thousands of albums, and he would have his senior hockey buddies over um, on uh, Friday nights growing up. And and honestly, that's how I got into it. He would let us play the tunes, but he said you got to pick from our rack, and there was like thousands. Uh, cool. You know, none of yours. And that's it. Me, me and my buddies, that's how we got into it. Um, yeah, but he, he mentioned that. He said, you know, London Calling. But, you know, because I asked him his favorite punk band, punk album. And he said, but the further the Clash get in, they're not really punk anymore. And uh, as I sit here with the remote, this wasn't planned. But, yeah, I find punk really interesting. A lot of it I find is shit, for lack of a better word. But the good stuff is not only good, but I think it influenced a lot of stuff today. I don't think you can hear Green Day, which is one of my favorite modern, I guess if you want to say that, they're in probably 50 now. But I don't think you can listen to a lot of stuff without realizing 
you know what? They're, they're, I can hear the punk roots in that. We're much while you listen to the well, well I, I think that you know to to just tease out your point a bit. I, I think that even with the punk, a lot of it. Like music, and the, the, I try to do this on, on my podcast, is you have to put it into the context of what's going on at the time, both yeah. in their life and in the general world, right? And then it makes a little bit more sense. So when you look at the Sex Pistols and you play a song like God Save the Queen or EMI, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it could sound maybe to your ear in 2023 as just kind of angry, noisy, non-musical, just kind of, you know, what was the big deal? But at the time, you know, this was the strikes, the general strikes in the UK. The economy was in the crapper. Margaret Thatcher was fighting with the miners. Uh, unemployment was at a record high. So when you had these punks going up and singing, you know, no future, God save the queen, she ain't no human being yeah. with a sneer, that meant something, right? Uh, yeah, you know, true. The, the Clash singing Guns of Brixton, you know, uh, when they kick in your front door, you know, how are you going to go, uh, you yeah. know, hands held over your head or, you know, at the end of a gun, like, and that was a direct result of the Brixton race riots that were taking place in London at the time. So, yeah, it, it really meant something back then, and I'm not sure that it resonates to you know to this day and age it's a great point and another reason i love your podcasts and uh, all podcasts of the sort i like um you got to put things into context again that's why i that's why sergeant pepper blows me away i think if that came out at that time just and you're in the music scene it must have been like what in the fuck is this um, i know uh, I, <laughs> I, I i said that on the on the podcast you probably heard me say it yeah. Terry, but and it, th- that's something that you and i missed but i i always when i have somebody of that vintage i always like to ask them like so like what was it like in june of 1967 <laughs> when you took this out of the sleeve put it on and you know, I've I had a buddy who grew up in Winnipeg, uh, an old television director. He's retired now, and he was like, that was his youth. And he said it was. He goes, it's hard to describe, but it was. You know, your friend got it, and he played it, and went, you got to come over and hear this, and you'd come <laughs> over and listen to it, and then you'd play it again, and then you'd call, and that's how it made the rounds, right? It was just you got to hear this. It's incredible. Uh, there was no instant streaming. There was, you know, none of that stuff. You had to go and buy it or a friend did and you listened to it. And I can't imagine what it would have been like because it was so different from anything else, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, it's, I'm looking for a word. I find it sad that that form of communication and, and and way to absorb the air it is almost gone. It's almost lost. I mean, I, I don't know. There must be people out there that look forward to a new album and play it somehow at their buddy's house. But, you know, before all the social media connections and distractions, and, and I'm not saying one is better than the other. Who knows, right? I'm not yelling at a cloud here on my lawn. <laughs> Get off my lawn. But <laughs> I, I do. There, there's something. There's a human connection there that's lost. And, and I, 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 my daughter... I've always, the soundtrack of her life, I don't try to force music on her, but I've always made sure that here's the important stuff. I don't even really say it. She's always, she knows who the Stones are, Springsteen, the Beatles, Miles Davis, Billie Holiday. I've always made sure to have some, she's going to be well-rounded, but I don't only play it. She can play her own stuff. And we look forward to go on drive. Uh, Dad, on drives, we'll play your stuff. When I go home, I'll play my, and, and her playlists are like a healthy mix. But uh, it's hard to explain the art of the album to her. 
Red Eye. I still don't, you know, because attention spans, I know I can get her on, hey, listen to this. No, no listen to this. Sergeant Pep. oh, yeah, that is pretty good. And it goes right, how about uh, uh, with a little help from my friends and then Lucy in the Sky, oh, that's awesome. Now let's listen to the full album. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> full album now for, it, it's like, it, it, it takes, it, it's almost beyond a lot of people's expected attention span, maybe. And uh, I still like to do it because we grew up doing it. But yeah. I <clears throat> I don't know where that exists or if it's good or bad, but <clears throat> I think that form of communication and, and the way to absorb the art is almost gone, don't you? Yeah, it is. And, and it's, uh, you know, and you'll hear artists lament this as well. I don't think people, uh, and again, I don't want to be old man yelling at clouds either, uh, but I, I don't think a lot of younger listeners realize the painstaking process that was sequencing an album you know the 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 time that artists would spend on the order of the tracks and back then of course when it was a physical lp yeah. uh you could only get you know x many tracks on a side so you would okay what do we want the opening track to be how do we want the side to finish i mean there's a reason that sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band finishes up side one with being for the benefit of mr kite Right. Because it's just this whole world and they want you to sit there when it ends and just sort of sit there for a second. And go, holy geez, what was that? And yeah. then you flip it over and side two starts with within you, without you. And it's yeah. just a little bit right. It's so there was a lot of thought that went into that. And, and I know you were you were telling me off air, Terry, about sort of discovering uh, the wall by Pink Floyd. And it's it's a long album. Uh, and yes, you're going to cherry pick some tracks if you're just if you got it on shuffle or whatever. But it you know, you should at least one time do the justice of sitting down and listening yeah. to it from start to front the way it was intended to. Uh, same with uh, Dark Side of the Moon. And you'll you'll get something out of it. You'll understand what they were trying to do, I think. I think so, too. I got to give a shout out to my friend Derica in North Bay for that one. She really I was look, we're all guilty of it in this world that we live in. And guilty. Is that even the right word? Because it's not a bad thing. But these short attention spans were almost built for it. You and I, look at what I'm doing, podcasting. I'm on a TV show. I got to have my Instagram going. I got to have I got to have clips out there. I got to have short clips to, to promote. I got to do these and, you know, appear on shows. And there's just so much to do that. I almost sometimes forget how much I like to absorb an album. So we were in North or Sudbury shooting and uh, Derricka was in a, in a, she's in Shorzy a little bit, season two. We sat by the jukebox and she got me into the, the, the wall. Dark Side of the Moon was my favorite, but that really, so it's still out there, you know, to be able to, uh, for me, for anybody listening, I highly recommend it. It's like Penny Lane again. She knows Bob Dylan and all the major songs, but I'm like, listen to Blood on the Tracks and then listen to Highway 61 Revisited and you will realize that where he was in his mind at the time. And then it's impossible to listen to those full albums without somehow being transported into that time, into the 60s, by the words being used, by the instruments being, by the words being used, I mean, and what he's talking about at the time, but also the instruments and where the, where pop culture and the world was as a result and you know so for me i'll always be an album guy um even though well i guess records are coming back but i'll always be an album guy and i'll force myself to go back and listen to the greats and there's usually a reason that they're great 
Yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> I mean, that, simply but succinctly put, you know, the, the greats are the greats for a reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's usually it's usually not because of luck. Uh, not that there wasn't luck involved <laughs> in getting there, but it, at the end of the day, Paul McCartney is generally acknowledged as the greatest writer of pop songs in the history of the genre for a reason, because he's, he's been doing it and he's been doing it well for a long time and he's really good at it. Um, that's a great, that's a know. great point. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll get into, I, I'm, I'm going to get into this a little bit later as well. So I want to, because I could go on and on and on. I love that somebody uh, appreciates music and the Beatles as much as I do on my podcast, but you did a lot in the eighties, man. You're coming out so it's one thing to land with like Landsberg who goes on to be, you know, very, I mean, a legend of sorts. And then you're working for Harry Neal and Bob Cole. Harry Neal was my dad's coach, by the way, in Hamilton oh. uh, for, the, for the Red Wings. Like, so I can't ask you this in, in everything that you've done. We're in 2023. What would be the greatest game ever? You know, but in the 80s where you're just getting started, was there anything that you covered that stands out above the other things? In the eighties, yeah. Uh, Just well, take that in the little box. The eighties, because you did a lot, and you're as you're getting started. I'm guessing a lot of this that I'm reading is freelance stuff. But you know, you've got your you've got your hand in a lot of kitties there. Like there's a lot going on. And, yeah, uh, I mean, I I was a very small fish in the in the eighties though. Like I was, you know, I was doing junior hockey on the radio, uh, and then I was doing some reporting for TSN. Um, I hadn't really started. To, I, I started anchoring for them later in the eighties. Um, you know, I did some writing, but I guess you know when I was a runner at Hockey Night, for example, which you referred yeah. to when I was working uh, with uh, Harry and Bob, and also uh, the great Dave Hodge. You know, I was just a fly on the wall, uh, observing and learning. Um, so I don't have as much a memory of of the games, although I'm sure I was working with Bob and and Dave for some big ones. Um, but in terms of direct involvement, I remember the 1987 Memorial Cup in Oshawa. Um, the Oshawa Generals were in the final against the Medicine Hat Tigers, and it was a young Trevor Linden. Trevor Linden, yeah. Who, who led I Medicine Hat that. in that game. Yeah, that was so that was a really big win, and I called that on the radio. Uh, so, really? You know, yeah, I called that. Well, that's Oshawa. big. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 no, it, and at the time it was. It was a, it was a dream come true to, uh, you know, not long after I'd been sitting in the stands watching the games as a kid, like less than a decade later, to actually be, uh, I'm using air quotes for those of you just listening, listening, uh, to be the voice of the generals on the local radio station. And then that was the last game I called, unfortunately, you know, for the generals, they didn't win it, but it was the, you know, the final game of the 87 Memorial cup in a building that I'd gone to as a kid to watch games. Um, so I mean, I can give you like personal highlights, but in terms of a big game, that would probably from the eighties be the biggest. I guess I will ask you as an extension then. So for the first, if you're getting into sports commentating and you're into Danny Gallivan, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, you're probably, I mean, I even love hearing Foster Hewitt. I like going back and listening to Foster Hewitt. So if you listen to the legends and you look up to them, then at that time, I guess Bob Cole wasn't what he is now, but he was, you know, he started in the 70s. He's done, he's, done, he's, he's, he's definitely one of the biggest. So do you remember, you know, meeting him 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like you know, for the first time. I, I know you remember working with him, but do you like? Was it a big deal to meet Bob Cole? I'm oh. from Newfoundland, obviously. So is he. So, but I forget where Bob, Bob comes into prominence for me in the '90s. But I think for a lot of other people, it's the '80s, right? Absolutely. Well, even going back, I think to the '70s was when he yeah. first. Because um, Danny Gallivan, it, it was Bill Hewitt was the guy on Hockey Night. Uh, you know, Foster's son, Bill. Yeah. Uh, and then later, you know, Danny Gallivan was a big guy as well, partly because the Canadians were so good. Uh, and then you know, Bob kind of started coming in, and then Bill Hewitt left. And uh, the CBC liked Bob's work for good reason. And he started doing more and more Saturday night games. So he became, you know, he became a, a big guy. You know, in the 70s, he was already a big guy. Oh, so yeah. when I when I met him in the 80s, you bet it was, uh, you know, and I'm... I could sit here and tell, as any Canadian broadcaster of my vintage could, I could tell Bob Cole stories for, for the next hour. I, mean, I bet. Yeah. He is a he's character an guy. and a legend. Uh, but I remember walking into the, the booth at uh, the old Maple Leaf Gardens to yeah. do stats for Harry and, and Bob, or it might have even been Bob and Mickey Redman was around and John <laughs> Davidson was around. Uh, but coming in and... Uh, you know, there he was. There was the guy. How you doing, young man? And uh, Bob's big thing was, you know, I kept sort of a hard copy of the scoring summary for them, and Bob would be calling the game, and it'd be, you know, and the puck down there to the leaf zone, and he'd put his hand over, and he'd like, boom, boom, boom on the table, which meant he wanted the scoring summary. So I'd quickly hand it over to Bob, and then he, and... That's last goal for the Leafs. It was, uh, you know, a Sittler from you know McDonald and Kehoe, and then he'd hand it back to me and give me a wink, and he'd go on with the play-by-play, right? But that meeting is- him, it was like, yeah, it was huge, and it, it and it was one of those probably Terry, like the first time you referred to it earlier, you know, walking into Maple Leaf Gardens, I'm sure to play a game, you were just. I can't believe I'm doing this. I was yeah. like that walking into the booth and sitting down. Uh, and I was like, my God, like Bob Cole's five feet from me and he's calling a Saturday night hockey night in Canada game. And I'm sitting here. I can't believe it. So uh, stuff yeah. like that was cool. Yeah. I mean, you're in your early twenties. Uh, so interesting things keep happening. Your, your career, uh, seems to, you know, it's, um, the trajectory is definitely a positive one all throughout the 80s. You must have seen some good things coming. You're working hard. You're a positive guy. You're good at what you do. Now, I didn't know this story. I only read it online. 1992, you do the Vanier Cup and you get carried off the field. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I, I have a, a, a vague recollection of it. But uh, I back then at TSN, uh, it was a young network. I was a young guy, and you did everything. Like I, I called play by play. There's n- almost nothing I didn't call play. I call play by play for beach volleyball. I call play by play for powerboat racing. I call play by play for basketball, uh, hockey, anything. So, and I was also a host. Um, I was the, the host of Baseball Tonight. Baseball on Tonight. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I did a lot of things. I wasn't just a hockey play by play guy at all. That didn't come till many, many years later where I was allowed to just sort of focus on one thing. So, to answer your question, um, they needed a host for the Vanier cup and uh so i got uh, you know i got fingered for it hey you know paul you can you can host all right uh and so you're doing your usual homework and so on and what i remember uh so i remember being there and the game finished and i was wearing a 
a wireless mic pack, which for those of you not in TV, uh, it's a little, basically it's a glorified walkie-talkie, but it's a little transmitter, probably about uh, four times the size of a matchbox, and there's a clip on it, and you, you clip it to your belt or whatever, and the mic is hardwired into it, and it transmits the signal to, uh, to the other end, which gets picked up, and then into the mixing board, and so on and so mm. forth. So and it's, it was an expensive piece of kit back then, still is. Uh, and the game ends and there's this crowd of people around us might've been for the trophy presentation. I was interviewing somebody. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember getting picked up by the crowd and sort of punk rock, uh, mosh pit style getting passed <laughs> across along the top of people. And I was just, I was body surfing and, uh, there, there's no security, like nothing to, to stop this. And it was getting a little bit scary, but they eventually put me down and, you know, the show got off the air or whatever. And I went walking back into the truck and I remember the technician coming over to me and, uh, I was a little pissed because like, where was the security? I could have been hurt, but in the end, it was all fun and games, and it was fine. Uh, but I remember walking into the truck and the technician going, hey, uh, where's the battery pack from the mic? And I just looked at him and I said, out there somewhere, underneath about 15,000 people, see ya. <laughs> and that was the end of that. So that's my recollection of that story. That is interesting. It's funny, when I looked at it, so there's a lot of, um, you know, real big-time football fans that bring that up a lot. I didn't realize. I mean, obviously, you all... You, you, I, I did my research, tried to look through Wikipedia and a few more, like, fans' comments, this and that, and uh, I couldn't believe how many times that came up. So a lot of people really? remember it. Yeah, That's yeah. I don't know if the footage exists somewhere in the in the, the TSN archives, I'm sure, but there was a shot. It was on the TSN blooper reel for years, the you know in-house reel you have of people's gaffes and, and stuff like that. And there was a shot, a uh, typical sort of wide shot going to break, uh, lower third scoreboard, and the shot in the background was like the crowd out in the field, and you can see me getting past <laughs> <Yeah>. above, <laughs> along the top of the crowd. So, oh, I don't know God. if, if that, that lives somewhere. I don't know if it's on YouTube or not. Uh, I hope so. I, talk about you know situations you don't expect to be in. Um, and I guess uh, here's another one. So six Olympics. Like, was that a goal? Were you asked to go? Was it a freelance thing? Um, were you working with TSN? And if it's six, then do any major Canadian interviews stand out? You must have interviewed athletes after they won a gold medal, no? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, initially, in early days... Um, Forgive me had, for not realizing, but I just don't remember a lot of this. I know a lot of what you did, a lot of your work. I really am a fan, but I didn't realize six Olympics. That's a lot. Yeah, well, and, and many have done many more, but uh, it was initially it was a collaboration tsn used to collaborate with cbc on olympic coverage and that was sort of uh my entree into the olympics was that collaboration uh because tsn would supply both behind the scenes people and commentators the first olympics that i did were the olympics in uh, sydney in 2000 and that was probably looking back the one that was the biggest highlight because I called play-by-play uh, -play for men's and women's basketball and uh, for basketball aficionados will remember that was the year that Steve Nash played for Canada at the Olympics. Uh, a, a Jay or Jeff Jay Triano was the uh, was yeah. the head, was yeah, the head yeah, coach. Yeah, I remember that. 
Nash was the, uh, was, you know, he had a spectacular tournament. Canada, I want to say, got to the quarters and they lost to the uh, Australian men's team in the quarterfinals. Either quarters or semis, I think it was the quarters. But that was really big to call looking back. And then I called basketball a few yes. years later in Beijing uh, and also called basketball in uh, Athens. Uh, as well. And then uh, my last sort of big Olympic assignment was in London, where we were living at the time. And I had the uh, the very prestigious sports of uh, weightlifting <laughs> and uh, men's and women's triathlon. So, but initially, it was that sort of collaboration with the with CBC via TSN that got me in that door. Interesting. Uh, I'll get to London in a minute. So how do you this is the thing to, to know so much about so many sports I, I can't assume that you just grew up knowing about the triathlon uh, but even baseball tonight you know baseball doesn't come up much in your bio but to host baseball tonight you must have a decent knowledge of baseball so did you just start realizing this and start like studying ahead of time like one would for jeopardy just in case questions come do you go like you know I might as well learn about lacrosse I might as well learn about cricket because I might have to cover it someday yeah, um, I mean, it was more probably, again, I can't stress enough how in those early days at TSN, uh, somebody in my position, you had to be a jack of all trades. I mean, okay. I, I, ho I hosted Sports Desk. I hosted Baseball Tonight. I was a reporter. I called play-by-play -play for, you know, probably half a dozen sports. Uh, I did live hosting. So you had to be able to do a bit of everything. And, you know, I think... Doing all those things, you just gradually accumulated knowledge. But I mean, my attitude, and I, I still do it for the podcast, is you, you really you want to do your homework before the show because you, you don't want to be caught in, you know, in the case of a podcast, asking a, a guest a question that's going to embarrass you or, or, or them or both. Uh, so you, you have to know your stuff. And I took the same approach when I was doing baseball tonight or, or anything like I would. Or beach I'd, volleyball. Well, I mean. Yeah. Like, I mean, and it would be right down to, again, this is pre-internet days. So yeah. if somebody said, uh, look, there's this beach volleyball tour, uh, you're going to Vancouver, you're going to call it with uh, Vic Lindo was the, the color guy who yeah. I remember. And uh, you're going to be calling it with Dick. So here's Dick's number or Vic, give him a call. Uh, so I'd call up Vic and say, hey, Vic, you know, Paul Roman, I'm going to be working with you. So uh, tell me about, you know, beach volleyball. And he'd just go through it. Well, you know, this is how it's played. These are the strategies. There's this, there's that. And you would just immerse yourself in it uh, and talk to the players and, and talk to those who'd been around it. Uh, same thing for, I remember doing play-by-play -play for the, the Valley Field Regatta, which back in then, then was a huge powerboat race mm. uh, that was held uh, in Valley Field, Quebec. And these were some of the fastest boats on the water in the world at the time. Knew nothing about it, but went down, talked to the drivers, uh, gathered whatever information I could. So you just gradually, you know, you accumulate all this stuff, right? And, uh, and hope yeah. it comes in handy. Interesting. And especially interesting before the internet. Uh, do you do you set aside as someone? You know, a lot of what I say we, but you know, you're more accomplished than I am. I got more going on, but I set aside like three or four hours a day. I usually find somewhere, some place that say, no, uh, no, what's the word I'm looking for? At least peaceful that I can write or I can concentrate in, and I put my phone away. Um, oops, I put my phone away when I can, uh, 
and, and try to concentrate maybe on, uh, maybe I'll write some notes, maybe I'll do a little bit of research on my guests coming up, maybe I'll write a chapter in my book, my next book, um, maybe I'll just absorb knowledge somehow, but I try to find a few hours a day. When you're so busy, but you don't really have a nine to five, how do you attack all that you do? Um, well, the most, most of the research I do now is, is for my podcast. Uh, and I would say probably I'll do maybe four or five hours of research for the episode. For and that would episode. include, okay. yeah. And that's going to include both researching the album, the songs, uh, trying to dig down and find some additional information than what's already out there. But also, uh, you have to research your guest and you want to have listened to a couple of their albums and probably read a couple of interviews that they've done and know what's going on with them as well. So you can ask intelligent questions about their work. Uh, so I, I would say it's that there's also a, a kid's hockey annual that I've been doing for many, many years called hockey superstars and yeah. you can get it through the the school book clubs and uh amazon and so on uh and again that's when i'm doing that it takes a few months uh you know you're looking at it you're looking at a good six hour day six seven hour day and i can maybe write if i'm having a good day i can get maybe one and a half or two profiles done on on players uh and that's including the research and the writing and the polishing and and so on and so forth so probably the same as you i mean it, it's it's like anything right terry i mean you know this whether you're whether you're a podcast host or a writer like yourself or whether you're a hockey player like you used to be you know usually uh, unless you're extremely talented and there aren't many uh you get out what you put in right uh yeah. so if, you know if the guys who stay and work in their skills after practice you know taking a pass giving a pass picking a corner hey those, big surprise those are probably the guys that go out and have 30 or 40 goal seasons right yeah interesting new customers download the DraftKings sportsbook app and use promo code thpn bet just five dollars to score 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly that's promo code thpn only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Massachusetts, call 800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Kansas, call 1-800-522-4700 on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. In West Virginia, gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. All games regulated by the West Virginia Lottery. Please play responsibly in partnership with Hollywood Casino at Charlestown Races. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. One boost per eligible game. Opt-in required. Max bet $50. 10-plus leg required for 100% boost. Eligibility, wagering, and deposit restrictions apply. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash baseball terms. So, as, as a journalist, let, let me say this. As a hockey player, I've often noticed, let's say, a tough guy. Let's say... People call them goons. I don't like to ever do that um, because as far as I know, even the toughest goons I know could still skate and they were in the NHL and they were pretty good. Darren Langdon had one shift a game, but in junior, he led the league in scoring. That's just, you know, so any, I don't like that word goon, but let's say a tough guy. So 
in the 90s, my era, there was, you know, the era of, I often say to my dad, it was bench-clearing brawls in the 70s, but tough guys were like Terry O'Reilly, I don't know, Stan Jonathan, Larry Robinson, I'm trying to think. Uh, you get into the 80s, you got Bob Probert. He was a 30-goal scorer, people forget. Chris Nyland had 20. Al Secord, 50-goal scorer. What's that? Al Secord, 50-goal scorer. Al Secord, yes, best example yeah. of all. Yeah. Uh, so... But it started to be like guys hired guns to come in, like Tony Twist. Eventually, I don't know, uh, the Boogeyman, Bugard, you know, Colt Nora. I can go on and on. Uh, George Larocque. Uh, these guys are good hockey players. I'm not saying they're not, but there's a there's a there's a toughness. Obviously, they they their main thing was toughness. So some people like me get into the sport, and I guess you got a competitive edge combined with a bit of a temper, and you're I'm not going to say fearless, but there's, uh, you know, not a lot scared me out there. So I kind of, okay, I'll fight. Sure, right? And you get into it. I'm pretty good at it. You go once in a while. But some guys required, like, you know, it was a hard job every night to go fight. And, you know, some of them were tough coming up. And they were, I know people that were juvenile delinquents that hockey kind of said, now they can get rid of that energy. And now they start to be respected and a leader in the room. And they run the music. And it changed their life. They're, 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 they were maybe... I don't want to use the word hoodlum, but they were, you know, maybe going the wrong direction, but they were so tough, and hockey gave that, you know, and now I'm going to get paid to and learn through a system, and I have a regiment, you know, it really helped them out. So, and I often go, what, the chicken or the egg? What's first? Were they tough first, and then hockey was a root, or they get into hockey, and then, you know, okay, I'll be tough. And it's fascinating because there's a difference. For you, I find you, many others in your position, Ron McLean's a friend of mine, he probably comes to mind, uh, Jeff Merrick, you're really well-spoken, you're articulate no matter what you're talking about, and you seem to have that radio voice. So did you notice that, that you had that and that's why you got in, or getting in and then kind of subconsciously by osmosis forms all that, that voice, that articulation, that pause, that, that way to commentate, the way to do play-by-play, because there's, there's something to it, right? There's really something to it. So what is it? Were you... Did you learn all that, or was it in you, and that's part of the reason that you went to be a journalist slash broadcaster? I don't know uh, is is the answer to that question. I uh, all I can say is um, I was a, a big reader as a kid. Uh, I can't stress that enough. I read okay. a lot, uh, and I I read, and I just know this from uh, I don't know if your if your mom and dad were the same, but you know my mom kept a little scrapbook of all my old report cards and stuff, which I, I yeah. still have somewhere, and I can remember looking at the old report cards, and and I was reading sort of two grades ahead of my level. So if I was in grade six, okay. I was reading books the kids in grade eight were reading. So maybe that had something to do with it. I was exposed to a lot of writing and. Uh, and as a result, a, a varied vocabulary, uh, different voices. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Uh, in terms of my speaking voice and my play-by-play voice, uh, it just, you know, it is it is what it is. Who knows? Okay. Maybe, maybe listening to Danny Galvin, I'm sure uh, that that probably yeah. influenced me subconsciously or otherwise because, of course, one of the, the great – uh, gifts that Danny gave to the play-by-play profession in Canada was the fact that he was articulate and he had a very varied vocabulary, right? He used different words. He made some up. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing that people don't talk about enough when you talk about Danny Gallivan is the cadence of his voice. You know, yeah. the way he would go along and down, up along, you know, listen to that that tremendous call of uh, the, 
the Guy Lafleur too many men in the ice goal against the Bruins, right? Lafleur coming up across center ice rather gingerly, drops it back to Lemaire, and the, yeah. you know you can just hear Gallivan building up to the moment. So uh, I, that's what I grew up listening to. So I'm sure that came across in my play-by-play. Fascinating. I think if you're well-read and you like a guy like Danny Gallivan, um, and I agree with the cadence. There's something to that's what I mean. With even with with Bob Cole too, there's a similarity there. Sometimes less is more. They weren't like. Do you know what I mean? There, there's something to, um, like I find when listening to them, it, it is an art form. Some people I, I don't think they're just calling the game and they're trying to get it right, and they're they're almost over. They're 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 not simplifying it. They're they're over explaining. But with those guys, I find there's just such a smooth transition, and uh, I like listening to their voice as much as I like the game. So it often works. But it's funny you say that. My mom and dad made me, made me. But I guess they did. I had to read or write for a half hour a night, and it didn't matter what it was. It would be dad had a subscription to the Rolling Stone, so I often it was Rolling Stone. But he's just like you'll be much better off. Just reading. Honestly, it's an education in itself. It's funny that you said that. Um, yeah, so you're in London the better part of a decade. What took you there and how hard, I know to a degree, but it wasn't a, a smooth transition for you as you might have thought with um, you know opportunities over there when it came to doing what you do? Or was it, and I'm wrong? No, it, it was uh, it was difficult. Um, you know, it, it, we went over there. Uh, I had left TSN to go, and uh, I needed a change. I was burned out from being on there. I was probably on the road, you know, 150, 200 days a year. Yeah. Uh, and it was, and I'd been doing it for a number of years. You know, I'd be, you know, my especially end of the hockey season, my typical sort of run would be uh, start of the baseball season into the hockey playoffs. We would do a game a night for, you know, a couple of weeks, first round of the playoffs, jump in a plane right away, take over to the world championships, away for another three weeks at the world hockey championship come back a couple of days off jump right back into baseball hosting and just on it went and it was great I'm, you know I'm not complaining that was the job I was young I wanted to work hard and 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 it was fantastic but after doing it for a number of years it was taking a starting to take a toll all of the travel and being away it was taking yeah, I a can toll understand of, that taking a toll of my marriage and uh so this opportunity came up to host a uh there was a, a group that was trying to start a national sports radio network. Yeah, uh, Team and, 1050. I remember hearing all about this, and yeah. I've appeared on team radio shows. Didn't realize the origins of it till I read about it. Anyway, tell us. Well, that yeah, so the, the original origin was they wanted to do, you know, the U.S. model, right? Like ESPN yeah. radio, coast to coast, uh, which doesn't work in Canada for a number of reasons, which we could do 10 podcasts on. But anyway, <laughs> they wanted to start with a, with a splash, so they hired a guy named Jim Van Horn, who was a colleague of mine at TSN, to do the afternoon slot. And the two big slots in radio are morning and afternoon. And they came to me and said, you know, would you be interested in doing mornings? And just the convergence of things in my life at that point, plus the fact that they were going to pay me substantially more money than I was making at TSN, I thought, and I'd always loved radio. Uh, you know, radio has always been a love of mine. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, take a chance and I'm going to do this. Uh, turned out to be, a, you know, a bad decision from that standpoint. A year and a half later, the format wasn't going to work. They fired us all. So I kicked around and was sort of freelancing, doing Leaf TV, still doing my writing, picking up some play-by-play. Uh, and then I was hired to be the radio play-by-play voice of the Toronto Raptors. Uh, great gig. Uh, 
Uh, so I did that for a season. But late in the season, my wife, who was working for Coca-Cola at the time, uh, was offered a position with Coca-Cola Europe, which is based in London. And it had always been a dream of ours at some point in our lives to try living in London to live Hell overseas because yeah. we loved it. And so here was a big company that was giving my wife a big opportunity and they're going to move us there and, and all that goes with a big corporate move like that. And so I thought, you know, why not? Uh, I love doing the Raptors on the radio, but I think this is bigger. And uh, and it turned out to be uh, a wonderful move. I wouldn't yeah. trade my time there for anything, all that I got to experience. Professionally, it was uh, tougher than I thought. Now, I, when we went over, I certainly didn't go over expecting that I would have the same level of, uh, of success that I had had here, i.e., uh, if you want to transpose things, uh, the big sport in Canada's hockey. I was doing hockey play-by-play at a high level. Uh, over there, the big sport is football, soccer. Uh, there was no way, despite the fact that I'd been doing you know, a big sport in Canada that I was going to step in and, and be doing soccer play-by-play. There wasn't a chance of that, and I didn't expect that would happen. But that being said, um, it was difficult to get on-air work uh, because I had you know, the wrong accent. Uh, and yeah, I'm curious about that. So, you know, yeah, the wrong accent. See, or, over here, many people would say, would, like the British accent, well, and, and many other British say, um, but over there it's not the same, is it? Like, uh, Well, it, it wasn't. Maybe it's changed. I don't know. But uh, it, I, I had producers from the BBC as well as a, a producer at uh, another sports network you know, I'm, I'm memory quoting, but they're almost exact words where I'd be a little bit uncomfortable putting you on to do this with your accent. Okay. Okay. So there's like, le- so legit, um, you know, this is not just out of your mind. You're not just assuming, but people literally said this that are in high positions in yeah. the business. Yes. That, that, that was the message that was conveyed to me. There was, I remember talking to, I was at a, a, a conference, uh, to write a piece for a sports business magazine. And I was talking with a BBC radio producer and, you know, you do, Oh, where are you from? This and that. I hear your accent. We're talking about it. And, uh, I said, Oh, you know, quite a bit of radio experience and so on. And, and the guy was a very nice guy. And he says, well, he goes, you know, you sound like you've got a lot of experience and, uh, and you know what you're talking about, but he goes, I've got to be honest. He goes, I, I don't think I could put you on the air to host a show with you with that accent. And wow. You know, what do you, that's, that's the way it goes. Hey, I want to know while you're over there then, I mean, there's a lot of music history in, in and around London, of course. Uh, it doesn't even have to be Beatles. That's not where I'm going, but I mean, they're included. Uh, did you take advantage of that? Did you go to any, uh, you know, you must have with your, oh, yeah. with your love of music. You must have, you know, from concerts to buildings to, you know, just absorbing it all. So you, you, did you? You did. Of oh, course yeah. you did. So, did you check out like Abbey Road and all that? Oh, yeah. It, there, it, it never, you know, we were there for almost 10 years and it, it never got tired ever when you'd have those moments when I'd get off the tube and I'd be walking down through Leicester Square to go and meet some buddies at a bar in Soho to grab a beer and you'd yeah. be walking along, just be going, man. I'm walking along the Strand or I'm walking along, you know, I'm going to, so, you know, there's old Compton street. There's, uh, you know, one silly thing was when we first moved there, we lived in uh, an area called Battersea, which is just South of the river from Chelsea. And, uh, so 
I would walk up to King's Road in Chelsea sometimes, you know, to do some uh, grocery shopping or whatever the case. But my route up over the Thames, over the Albert Bridge, and then uh, up through the, the sort of lower Chelsea towards King's Road. And you walked up this street called Flood Street. And uh, you walk up there. And just on the left on Flood Street, not far below the King's Road, was the studio where the Beatles uh, shot the cover for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, man. And, and you'd walk by there and go, wow, like that's that's where it happened. I, I wonder if they went out and had a drink at the pub around the corner. Uh, or you'd be walking through... Uh, an area very, you know, not far from uh, from Piccadilly Circus, uh, and you'd weave your way, and you'd be on Savile Row, and you'd walk along, and you go, yeah. oh, "There's, there's the old Apple headquarters. There's, you know, that's where they did their their last show." All that stuff, you know, it's it, and not even just Beatles. You know, you're walking along and there's a blue plaque on a building, and you walk over and look at it, and you, uh, Bram Stoker lived here, author of Dracula. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, guitarist lived at this address, and it, those—that's all. It just surrounds you. It's so cool. Such a big, fascinating city. I've only so. I went over there. I went over with Jason Momoa to do season three of Frontier, and then a few other things. But I went northern. I went like, we we flew into Edinburgh, and then I was in. I forget what they call it, but Newcastle up. So it was, it was a Nor Northumberland. So I only got to London for one day, man, on the way back, and. I just went on the subway system and I tried to get off at like every second stop so I would see most of, at least I'd have a glimpse of what I wanted to see. But it's funny, I've been over there now twice, once for months on end, and I still haven't really experienced London like I wanted to. But to get to do it for a decade, you know, for someone like yourself that, you know, not only the music thing, but, you know, it's a cool place to live. It's got a vibe and uh, must have been really cool. Now you move back. Now, where's the timing on this? Because you come back in 13 or 14. And I know you did these kids' books, and you mentioned it. But where was the inspiration? And were you always doing those, the hockey superstars? Yeah, I started doing hockey superstars in the uh, sort of mid-late 80s. And the way that yeah. came about, it was just one of those funny things. Uh, I knew because I was a runner at Hockey Night in Canada, I, I had occasion to work with Brian McFarlane. Yeah, uh, who, there's another guy. I used to read his books all the time prolific author and a good broadcaster uh and uh and brian called me aside one day and he said uh paul i'm, I'm doing some work on a book and uh, well, i could use some help with research would you mind helping me out and i said you know sure mr mcfarland that'd be great yes. uh so you know i went up to his house and uh he showed me into the basement and he had again pre-internet uh he had his own hockey reference library and so i was there for probably a couple of days, went back and forth, and, and I helped him with this book that he was doing, and the book came out, and that was fine. So then fast forward probably uh, eight months or a year later, and he, he says, look, I've got a meeting at, uh, at the publishers, and uh, you know, I, I'd like you to come along. You, know, you, might, you might meet someone, you might learn something. I said, yeah, okay, that'd be great. So we go to this meeting at Scholastic, and I'm there with Brian, and we're sitting in with these two executives, and they're, they're talking about this book that he's going to do, and, and I'm just listening. And then they finished that, and they said, okay, well, so there's that other project we talked about. We, we'd like to do a hockey annual, you know, hockey superstars, and it would come out every year at the start of the season. It would have, for young readers, sort of, you know, 8 to 14, mm, and it would be, you know, and, and uh, Brian looked at me, and he said, uh, and then he looked back at them, he said, well, 
I don't really have time to do it uh, because I've got too many other commitments. But this young man here would be the perfect candidate. So little did I know he'd set me up for this and it was dropped Wicked. right in my lap. Yeah, like what a kind, kind man to do that for a, a young person like myself. Yeah. And I've been doing the book for Scholastic for 35 years, I guess. The, 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 the next one comes out in a couple of months for at the start of the season. And that's how that started. So forever, interesting. forever grateful to Brian. Okay, interesting. I was wondering how, how the origins of something so close yet so far. Just not a lot of people uh, do any kids' books that, that I know. I mean, I'm sure lots of people do, but just not a lot of people. In the, and the first one who told me about it was Ken Reed. Ken Reed's a good friend of mine and a, and a great author as well. Yeah. Um, and he uh, he turned me on to it. It's wild. Uh, congrats to you. So right now, your main focus is the Walrus's Paul, right? Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Okay. And but you're still freelancing, and and you know you're you're still up for a gig. I uh, certainly I am, but uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know I'm retired. Uh, we came back. I did hockey night in Canada for four years, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Didn't end the way I wanted it to. Uh, you know, line forms to the right in the Canadian broadcast industry, and and Rogers in this case for all the you know older commentators who've been fired uh, over the last several years. I was one of them. My number came up. Uh, so. For all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm retired. I do some teaching. I still do my uh, hockey annual. Uh, I do the podcast just to keep my broadcasting chops sharp, and I, I enjoy doing it. Uh, I get a great deal of, of pleasure of you know talking music with, with uh, yeah. getting to meet musicians and so on. But yeah, if somebody it called me up and said, hey, we've got a play-by-play -play gig, I'm all ears, but I'm not sitting by the phone. <laughs> Okay, interesting though. And look, I love it. I love that you're spending your energy on this because it blew me away, not only as a Beatles fan though. Um, just, it's real interesting. There's a guy I listen to online, uh, Dan Carlin. He is a Dan Carlin hard, hardcore history. And Jeff Merrick showed up on a podcast once and I didn't know the two. I, I'm like, how did these two worlds connect? Dan's from like Southern United States and Merrick is always on there, but he's a smart guy. I didn't realize he listened to this. So when I listened to you, it was much, it was much, much the same. Um, I know people have other interests, but it's your, your deep knowledge of the deep cuts and everything that goes along with it. I love the podcast. I can't say enough more about it. Do you mind if we just stick around and do 10 more minutes? I know I promised an hour. We're already at it. Uh, just rapid fire random, some easy layups that I'm just curious and maybe the listeners would like to know. Sure. Okay, here we go. Paul Romanuk, rapid fire randoms. Death Row Meal, you've just committed murder for some reason and you're in Texas and you are going to be put to death. But the night before, they say, have whatever you want, anything. It's on us. You had a, your, your meal right before you die, what would it be? Uh, it would have to be uh, I, I, two, be a tough choice. Uh, I could eat pizza every day, love it, so maybe a good pizza. But I guess if I was going big, if it was my last one, it would probably be Osso Buco and Risotto Milanese. That would be my beautiful Italian meal. Awesome answer. Italian is my favorite, by the way. My favorite place to visit is Rome, Italy, not that you asked. Um, superpower. You had to pick one superpower. What would it be? Uh, probably nothing exciting would be for the ability to fly. Interesting um, and understandable. You have a time machine. You can go anywhere at any time. And no butterfly effect. You know, you can run into people, whatever. You just, you're in this, you're invisible. You can even go forward in time if you want. To, but you only get one trip. Once you use it up, can't use any more. Where would you go and why? 
I would have liked to have been of a certain age in London during the swinging 60s, you know, back at the height of psychedelia, uh, 66, 67 into 68, uh, tripping up and down the King's Road, dressed like a dandy in flowery shirts and wide lapels and listening to the Beatles and discovering all that, probably, you know, maybe dropping some LSD, discovering pot, all that went with psychedelic London. That would have been a really cool time to have been in a city like that when all of that culture was exploding. I think so as well. I would have to think about my number one, but put it this way, that would at least tie it because I would love that as well. Um, Okay. You get to sit in the studio. Again, you're invisible, but you get to be there on one Beatles album. doesn't have to be your favorite, right? My favorite isn't necessarily the one I'd want to be in the studio for, although I'm glad Get Back just came out. Pretty much we're in the studio, and I was waiting to see that. But what, where, 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 would, where would you, which one? I think it would have been fascinating to have been a fly on the wall uh, while they were making the White Album because uh, it's just such a diverse palette of musical styles and you know, my understanding of, of researching the album is there were three main studios, or at that time there were three main studios at Abbey Road, uh, then known as EMI Studio. Studio One, Studio Two, Studio Three. Studio Two is where they did most of the recording. Studio One is a huge studio where they would do orchestral things, uh, and Studio Three was a smaller, more intimate studio. And when they were making the White Album, there were days when they were in all three studios. McCartney was in Studio Three working on why we do it on why don't we do it in the road. Uh, Lennon and Harrison were in doing tape loops for Revolution 9, and George Martin had an orchestra in another studio and was trying to score a, a different song that was in the album. So to have just been there and popped your head in room to room and seen all that creative energy, I think it would have been really, really cool. So that'd be the one I'd pick. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, I love that you talk about the sophistication of their recordings. And until I listen to your pod, even though I know it, it all happened in what? eight, nine years, um, your, 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 the dates, like often I'm like, oh yeah, like they, they not only did that, they put out an album like three months later, like what, the, you know, so, I think one year five or, or like, I mean, come on, right? Like you, you, you forget the how, it wasn't just them though either, that was the way the industry was then, but to be so creative and to be, have so much energy and be recording around the clock and then take, ah, we'll break for a week and then we'll do it again. <laughs> Yeah, but well, like, like ni- 1964, I want to say it was, right? So they, they've done uh, A Hard Day's Night, the movie. They've written songs for a soundtrack. That comes out earlier in the year. It's a, Both are a great big success. Uh, they put out a couple of non-album singles. So I Feel Fine comes out as a single. Uh, yeah. And Back With She's a Woman, another single track. And then uh, near the end of the year, they're, you know, they're touring, all that. And then it's, oh, boys, we're going to need an album for Christmas. So in they go and they, and they knock off uh, Beatles for Sale. Like that's all in that's one calendar year, so it, it's mind blowing when you look at the 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 level of output, but the quality of the output I think is what makes it remarkable. Yes, and I heard you mention a lot of the time these there's some albums that you know only appear stateside, and there's some that were made for European audience. Um, Yesterday and today, I believe, is one of those. So I have the butcher cover. I tracked it down. Into of the real life, like I tracked it down. So, without getting to, I, I know it's your interview here, but I know you'll like wow. you'll appreciate this. So, 
I was told, I hurt my ankle is what happened. I, I, I held out in Montreal. I didn't like Michelle Terry and I didn't go back to camp. Whatever, it's all good. It was my on me. I should have gone back. But while I was sitting out, I, I went to Dallas and I, I hurt my ankle. Well, I went, not sitting out, I got traded to Dallas. I hurt my ankle. So the writing was on the wall. It was a high ankle sprain. And as months went by, I knew I wasn't getting back. So I, I tried to sign. I shot it up with cortisone. I said, I'll, now that I'm a free agent, every other time I didn't really have a choice where I went. I'm going to play in some cities that I love, and I probably won't ever get to the NHL again, but God damn it, I want to experience Boise, Idaho, Cincinnati, and Orlando, Florida. I want to do this. So, And it was good enough. I could skate around in the minors and, you know, on cortisone. So I went to Cincinnati, and they were affiliated with San Jose, and San Jose said, look, like we'd love to have a look at you, but how is your ankle? We looked at it, and I just couldn't skate anymore, so I had to sign my retirement papers. It killed me. It broke my heart. But... <clears throat> I went online, it was at Christmas time. I was gonna get a present for my dad. And I said, I'll just I'll pack my stuff and I'll go back after Christmas. So I, I go on Amazon, I guess, and I, I was, um, or eBay. I went to look, I said, you know, for shits and giggles, I'll just type in Beatles memorabilia. And anyway, the butcher cover came up. For those that don't know, I don't have time to get into it, just Google it and check it out. And I, this man had it, and it was on, I forget, at the time, maybe 2,500, 3,000. But he was a huge Canadians fan. And I got speaking with him, and he said, yeah, well, I'm actually in Kentucky. And I'm like, well, I'm in Cincinnati. I'm just over. I'm like, really? We, we tracked it down. I was like 35 minutes from his house. So he said, if you can get me a signed Habs jersey, one from yourself and one from the team is there now, and I... I I sent a message to the trainers and the, right away, and they got back to me, said, yeah, we can have one there within seven days. No sweat, Terry, no sweat. <laughs> and they sent it down to me, and I gave him 500 bucks and the signed jerseys, and he gave me the butcher cover, and I put it in a case, and it's on our wall right over the mantle. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, and it's, it's admit it, to. And it's, a, re it's a real one. It's a it's real, real one. one. Peel wow. in the store. They, it used to be, I guess, you'd know better than me maybe, but, you know, so many came out, uh, you know, I guess I can explain some of it. So they, I think they were protesting Vietnam or whatever, and they, they put out, they're in butcher coats, and the babies are like mutilated. They're, they're dolls with blood all over them. And at the last minute, they said, you know, this is ridiculous. We're the Beatles, and this is not, this is not going to be accepted as well as we think it will, or, or at least the way we think it will. So the last minute, they changed it, and I believe, I mean, some people even say it's part of the Paul is dead thing. He's in a box, and they're kind of standing over him. But it's completely different. It's not the butcher cover. But these were already out there, so they ironed on the other cover over the butcher cover. That's, that's my understanding what happened. And anyway, you could, like, a lot of people would iron the front, and they could peel back the layer. So I have, the, I have it all peeled wow. back. Just a little bit, little bit there to remind you that, it, yeah, it was, it was yesterday and today. That is, a, uh, that is a find, my friend. Good for you. It's a find. Uh, your favorite sports jersey ever? Uh, it's it's going to be a weird one. Um, the last year of the California Golden Seals, their road jersey was kind of a turquoise color with football stripes up by the shoulder and the Seals logo across the front. I just think they were the 
coolest sweaters. Yeah. There'd been nothing like them in, in the NHL up till then. And I thought, the, I think the Sharks do a retro version, but th- that would be my favorite hockey sweater of all time. Now, if you're going classic, you can't beat the red Montreal Canadian sweater. But but I love this, I love the the uniqueness of the the last year of the Seals, their road jersey. Turquoise with the, the football stripe by the shoulder and Seals across the front. Interesting. Uh, that's a great answer. And I don't know that I've ever, ever heard anybody say it, but it's a fantastic jersey. Your favorite athlete ever non-hockey? Probably be uh, Lionel Messi, non-hockey. Now, so how about this? What are you gonna? Are you gonna go watch Miami? I'm I'm all over this. I'm my daughter plays soccer on the provincial team. She's really into it. We just went to an MLS game in in Montreal. It was awesome. Sold out. What an atmosphere! And I said, "That's it. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go see Christine Sinclair at some point. She plays in Portland, and uh, you know, hopefully she can. I, I don't know. I figured she'd be retired. I think she's forty or forty-one, but a great role model. We've always followed. And I said, we're gonna go see Messi. I don't know where that'll be because I think he's already played in Toronto. But I'm intrigued just by the whole thing, by what impact it's gonna have. It's Messi. It's arguably the number one." recognize athlete on the planet you can make the argument but it's the united states do people give a shit i don't know what do you think i think there will be enough people that will give a shit uh because uh, you know america is such a melting pot of of cultures and people from around the world um you know is i mean two two parts to that answer so there'll be enough people who will know Lionel messi that they will fill stadiums to watch him i don't think there's any question about that uh but you know he's also he's this is a an exhibition tour almost right i mean he's not he's not he's he's not going to be playing in the best league in the world and he's not going to be at the peak of his powers i i don't think but having said that hey i mean paul mccartney doesn't rock the way he did uh, when he was in the beatles in the in the 1960s or as a solo guy in the 70s you still go see paul mccartney because he's a legend so i i think it's going to be it, it is a big deal yeah I, I really can't wait i mean i i enjoyed the whole beckham craze uh but i think this will be why i mean the guy and you're right he's like what 35 but six months ago he was the mvp at the world cup yep, uh, yep so so who knows and i i find it fascinating though i think it's great for the sport and uh it's a slow process but it is getting more and more popular i love soccer and it's so popular worldwide i i really hope that it catches on more and more and more every year and i can't see that hurting it um okay you're a first timer you're out with somebody that's well-versed in life, pop culture, music, but unfortunately, they've never even heard of the Beatles now. So this is a huge hypothetical, but how do you impress them? What song do you play? You got one song to start with, and hopefully they like it and you can move on. Where do you go? If I was going to play one song, it would be Penny Lane. I would say, uh, you know, that is, to me, is just articulates perfectly the Beatles at the height of, uh, of 60s pop psychedelia. Uh, it tells a story, uh, the, the orchestration in it, the production is outstanding. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful tune, beautiful melody. It's, uh, you know, McCartney does a great job singing it. I go, you know, here's Penny Lane, start here. Uh, that would be mine. I can't argue with you there. I hate to, uh, I'd love to. It's my dad's answer for me. I think so, too. I think it's a perfect combination of all of it. I think, I think once people were into the Beatles, what fascinates me, still a lot of people that are like almost first-timers that hear, oh, I, I heard she loves you and I want to hold your hand. I'm like, no, it's deeper. But if you really want to know how deep, 
play Eleanor Rigby without the lyrics. I'm like, yeah. that's rock and roll, right? You're listening to, to an orchestra. I, it's so brilliant. Again, even that when it came out, Eleanor Rigby, like it must have sounded what? This is rock and roll? Like, you know, it sounds like Beethoven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a classic McCartney story song, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which talent would you most like to have that you don't? Uh, I'd like to be a better athlete. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh, maybe, uh... I, don't, I don't have a naturally athletic bone in my body. I uh, I work hard and struggle at golf. I'm about a 14 handicap. Uh, I I wasn't a very good hockey player. Uh, you know, yeah. I I but I'm I've spent my entire career, my professional life, around natural athletes like yourself. And uh, you know, you go out to golf with somebody like that, or they'll pick up a tennis racket and they're they're immediately they're they're swinging a tennis racket for the first time and they're like five times better than you'll ever be and I, I hate that so I'd like to be a better athlete. Interesting. Um, did you use the word soccer ever in in London? No, no, sir. Uh, it's it's uh, the game is football. It is played with your feet. It is not soccer. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so soccer question. You got to say it's the in this hypothetical World Cup final. But whoever it is on e either team can't take the shot. You have to pick. You have to pick someone that you've worked with. Doesn't have to be, you know, someone that you were on air with, like Landsberg, or someone that you worked with, like in the sense of Harry Neal and Bob Cole. Anybody at all to take a shot. Okay, here it is. All the beans are on the line. Let's say this. There's a million dollars in the pot. Me and you. I can pick one of my friends. You pick yours. It's a professional goalie. It's a soccer net. It's a penalty shot. I know they're pros, but this is the one thing that a mere mortal might be able to score on, especially an athlete. Who do you pick that you worked with? Mike Johnson. Okay, the hockey player? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very, and I've heard he's uh... a great athlete because I listen to him on overdrive once in a while, and he talks about playing like baseball and other things, and I actually played a game against him, and I look up to that guy. He's a well-spoken uh, athlete that's few and far between. To me, the, to me uh, and I was lucky enough to work with him for a couple of seasons, the best color guy in Canada for doing hockey for me right now. Interesting. I, very okay. good. Okay. Well, you know, I can't disagree. I love his takes, and uh, it's usually a consideration for the fan, not just the hockey player. That's what I notice about Mike. Uh, you got to give up one of these things. What would it be? Pizza and pasta, jeans and beer, or wine and hats? <laughs> Well, I know you love pizza. Yeah, I guess probably beer and jeans. If I had to, if I had to pick a pair from the list of, uh, you know, be be tough though. I'd I'd miss a cold beer after a round of golf, but you know, I could have a glass of wine. And I, you, you know, look at me, I'm a hat guy. I, like I can't <laughs> be giving up hats. Hat <laughs> so that's that's right <laughs> off the table. And I love my pasta, so yeah, that's got to be jeans and beer. Uh, okay, almost done. Seinfeld or Friends? Oh, Seinfeld. Me too. I don't think it's close. Pet peeve. Pet peeve? Yeah, what's your pet peeve? Or what's a pet peeve, I guess? Pet peeve. 
Oh, well, you know, a classic of, you know, idiots walking down the street, uh, talking on their cell phone like it's a walkie-talkie instead of holding it up to their ear or using their earphones. You know, we've all <laughs> seen that. You, know, you hold it out in front of you. you know, yeah, so I'm going to, uh, you want me to pick those yeah. things up? So I said to this guy, yeah, good. Now we all know. Uh, so yeah, yeah, what's worse be. is people doing it at a restaurant. Oh, yeah. It's wild it, how that became acceptable. I'm cool. It's all, but I'm like that. I don't know how that became, it's still ignorant. It's still ignorant. I don't care that phones are everywhere. That's still a fucking ignorant move. Yeah, I'm, I'm, right, I'm right with you. Uh, what's your most prized possession? Well, other than uh, obvious things, um, you, know, uh, you know, my health, my wife, uh, stuff like that. Um, yeah, let's say materialistic. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. No family stuff, not like anything that is sentimental like what's your most i guess it could be sentimental but you know what i mean not baby being born not like wife love and all that because <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, the obvious uh, answer that you'll get in shit if you don't say let's just say for me butcher cover would be up there my habs jersey definitely is probably at the red red habs jersey they were nice enough at the end of every year gave us one and gave us the option to buy the other one if we wanted i always got both Wow. I see that's, I don't have, you know, I, I, I kind of regret this. I was never a, a big collector. Um, when I, you know, when I could have snared all kinds of stuff like that. And I, so I, you know, I didn't gather up a whole bunch of things. So I guess if, if we're talking memorabilia, um, then it would probably be, uh, one of the, the Spengler Cup tournaments that I did, the team won that year. And uh, I went down and I had a, a jersey, a sweater, and I got all the guys to sign it. And I, Is I it still one behind your head? around somewhere. Um, There's one over there. It looks like a Spengler Cup type of jersey. Six yes, it captain. is. Yeah, that, that one's got, yeah, that's got a bunch of signatures on it. Um, so I've got a few of those. But yeah, something like that um, is, is pretty cool. And then in terms of music, uh, and again, this is a real, you know, I'm pushing up the glasses, nerdy thing, right? Uh, but I've got uh, Paul McCartney did a collaboration uh, with the uh, with and, and it, it, the collaboration was called the Firemen. Uh, yeah, yeah, a few years ago, the pop, like the uh, dancey stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, sort of. He did a couple of albums, and it, it, it's kind of trippy. Uh, trippy. It really, but he did one sort of collector's version and it came in a steel box with the album on vinyl and the CD and a bunch of, uh, of art prints uh, that McCartney had done for this box. And it was like, it was a couple thousand bucks to get nice. at the time. There aren't many of them around. And so that's probably my most treasured sort of music uh, memorabilia thing that I have, but nothing uh, does not a patch on the butcher butcher sleeve. Hey, that's still great, and uh, yeah, like thanks for bringing up the firemen. I, I often don't because it's so far out of the realm of most. Uh, I don't say most. I'm not putting down people that might be listening. I'm saying, you know, that's a real deep dive, and it sounds nothing like anything that he's done post Beatles. Uh, you know, I think he put out an album like the same year with like English tea on it, and it was like, wow, this is wild stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I like all his albums, but that was a step in a weird direction that i absolutely ate up okay hot air balloon across canada okay you got to get in this hot air balloon you got to go across canada so i mean they move but not like a plane it's going to take a while at least a week do you go with david hasselhoff david letterman david beckham or david suzuki oh that's a good one uh well i i, I will narrow it down immediately to uh i i would say 
David Suzuki, because he would be, especially in that context of your example, you're drifting over Canada. Uh, you're going to see all these things from the air. And there's a guy who knows a lot about science and the environment and geography. So you'd have lots to talk about. Uh, David Beckham, you know, you ask him a bit about his career. You talk a bit about uh, about one of the Spice Girls, kind of done. Hasselhoff, I've never watched the show. Uh, you know, maybe talk about chicks for a while. That might be something you do with David Hasselhoff. I don't know. Uh, but I think Suzuki, you'd have lots to talk about. Yeah, I think so too. Okay. Final question. And sorry for keeping you so long. It's been entertaining. Um, your all time team. Okay. So same thing in this hypothetical world, there's a million dollars in the kitty. It's me against you. I get to pick five players and a goalie from all time. And so do you. And in this hypothetical world, they're all in their prime. Except you can't, we, neither one of us can pick anybody that played for the Habs or their names are Orr, Gretzky, Howe, or Lemieux. <laughs> now, who do you pick? Oh, well, Three forwards, too. It doesn't have to be like a, a typical right winger. You can put Crosby out there with Eisenman or whatever, like, you know, just as an example. You, you take a lot of guys off the table, but uh, just going by your, because, uh, I mean, I would go, I would, I would dial in 70s halves, of course, because that was my era. But if they're off the table, uh, Sidney Crosby, of course. Got to be on the. Is, is, I like know. how you said, of course. So he's he's where I put number five of all time. Just, I mean, incredible talent, of course. Uh, I mean, Connor McDavid. Uh, did was he on your list, or is, is he off the list? Well, no, no. He's he's. You can pick him. I mean, uh, I, I I'm not going to pick right now. That's the one question that I. The only three that I ask every single person are death row meal, superpower, and all time team. And uh, we always finish with this. So the reason I took the Habs and those four players off is because a lot of people go there. Yeah. It, it, it gets interesting after that. That's well, you got, we get Crosby, uh, yeah. McDee, uh, Matt Sundin. Great pick. Matt Sundin. Funny uh, enough, no one has picked him, but yeah, great I, I would make a, and you'll like my next pick as well, I would make a strong argument that Matt Sundin is the greatest Leaf of all time. Uh, so I would, I, I, okay. I, if I took that to a jury, I'm not saying I'd win the case, but it would be a very strong argument. Likewise, I could make a very strong argument that my next pick, Nicholas Lidstrom ah. is the greatest defenseman of all time. Okay. Now, now I know there, every, this is Canada where I'm sitting recording this and where you're sitting talking to me, but, uh, and so we all default to Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, of course, amazing, changed the game in oh so many ways, tremendous talent, career tragically cut short. But when you look at what Nick Lidstrom accomplished in Stanley Cups, individual awards, and the fact that he was almost never injured during an era where I think the players were bigger, faster, and stronger, I think you could make that case for Nick Lidstrom being uh, being the greatest defenseman of all time. So he would be the next guy on my list. Beauty. Okay. Now you got one more defenseman and a goalie. And by the way, I get the argument. I don't know where to go with it. I do. I, I love Lidstrom. And, the, you know, he won a lot in an era that had 30 teams, I, you know, that to me, anybody that wins now, I love it. I got coached by Von Cormier here. Steve Schutt, I get it. I'm a Habs fan, but to me, especially if you go back further, like the pocket rocket, I think he got the most ever with 11 cups. I could be wrong, but I think so. But I know he must have been great, but, you know, I don't think you can judge Eric Lindros the same for not winning one. You know, it's just no. th almost 30 teams in the league. Anyway. Yeah, there, yeah, there were six teams. You had to yeah. win two rounds to win the cup. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. not taking anything away. Uh, next defenseman, I'm going to go old school, Denny Potvan. Uh, <laughs> it would be a, a toss between Potvan or Chris Pronger, both of whom immensely skilled, but also both with a massive nasty streak. They would as soon scare you as take the puck from you or maybe do both. So I, I think you need a bit of that out there. Uh, and then speaking of that, by the way, he knocked out my father's two front teeth that are still out. He's got the <laughs> fake ones. Yeah. Danny Poffin in the OHL in the uh, early seventies in 1970. Oh, anyway. he, he was a tough, nasty defenseman back in the day. So I go old school for, or, but Pronger, Pronger, Potvan, inter- or pardon me, uh, Pronger and yeah, Denny Potvan, you know, interchangeable, but I'll, I'll go with Potvan for the goalie. Uh, gotta be Patrick Waugh. Oh, well, he's sorry. A- he's Montreal Canadian. Yeah. Man, I guess I could give you Wah even not on the Habs because he's got he's got the cup, he's got the con Smythe. You know, he's uh, done. Uh, if I have to go non-Hab, like never played for the Habs, Dominic Hasek. Dominic Hasek. Yep, yep. Wasn't that wild? Try to tell people now. It's one name. I played senior hockey right up until this year. As guys on my team in their early twenties, and I go, guys, you just don't realize. You don't realize how good that this guy was. And I don't know, we look back, and but I mean, can you remember when he took Buffalo to the final? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. to me was just amazing. And it's not like it was this, at that era, everybody was starting to use the big pads. I mean, my draft year, Martin Biron came out and John Sebastian Giger. A couple years later, Luongo, not to take away from these guys because it was part of the game, but it's hard to even see any net. But Hasek was so reflexive. He's all over the place, and he's and he's doing things that still aren't really done. I, do I want to say ahead of his time because the time hasn't come yet, or is he just his own style that you know will forever be remembered as Dominic Hasek? Who knows? But great pick. I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, I know we're running out of time, but I covered yeah. uh, I covered that final uh, Buffalo and Dallas. I covered that Stanley Cup final as a reporter for TSN, and. Uh, it was it was near the end of the game, and I had this was the the game with the you know Hull in the crease goal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I had gone down anticipating that the game was going to be over, and I was hanging out sort of in the hallways between the two dressing rooms at the old Buffalo Memorial Auditorium, and I wasn't supposed to be there, but I ducked into the Hockey Night in Canada room, and I was talking to Ron McLean or whatever, and I came out, and they sort of cleared the hall, and I just thought, well, I'll just kind of you know, stick to the wall and maybe nobody will see me. So I'm watching the game on a monitor with some of the hockey night guys. The whole thing with Hull happens, ends, they'll come off the ice and Gary Bettman shows up, you know, getting ready to do his bit to go out and present the cup. Lindy Ruff, who was the coach of the Sabres at the time, was down the hall. And I think I was the only reporter there. And he was yelling down the hall at Bettman saying, I just want you to F and tell me why. I just want you. And Bettman was ignoring And you're right there. I was right there and I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, I was incredible. Wow, that is interesting. That's a little piece of history. Yeah. Yeah, it's all I, history, but that's a major piece. If people know, look back. If you know, a lot of the people that listen to this show are in their twenties, probably don't really remember. Um, but hey, go go back. Look at the Brett Hall goal. It was a very controversial thing at the time, and uh, I remember Lindy Ruff being fucking pissed. Oh, pissed! Was, but, so, but I didn't realize you were there. That's what he was yelling. He was he, he was you know I'm memory quoting, but it, the the gist of it was I just want to know why now. He never said why you wouldn't review it, why you allowed it, why, but he was just beside himself. And that was like right after the game. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a great story to end on, Paul. Uh, do you have anything to plug or promote before we go? 
Uh, just my podcast available wherever uh, fine podca- podcasts are available. Uh, the Walrus was Paul, uh, great Canadian musicians talk about some of the greatest music ever made. Unbelievable. Well, it's a great podcast and count me in as a regular listener. Thank you very much for being here today. And it was nice to talk to you after all these years. And I hope it's not the last time we get together for something like this. Fantastic. I'm sure it won't be. It was uh, my pleasure and honor. Okay, brother. Thanks a lot. And uh, I will reach out one of these days. I'm in Toronto and maybe we can get together for, uh, for uh, hey, a coffee, a beer, a drink, some wine, some pasta. Who knows? Love to. Okay, brother. Thank you very much, and see you again soon. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Paul Romanuk, jack of all trades. And uh, I guess you could say we go way back. But uh, I knew Paul would be an interesting guest, and it's probably going to be – I'll probably ask him to come on again sometime in the future. So if you have any questions that I didn't ask that you'd like me to ask, just shoot them through to me at uh, terryryan2020 at gmail.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and uh, we'll be back in just a few more days with more tales with TR. If you're downtown St. John's this weekend, why not? Go and check out the Bull and Barrel. Check out Trinity Pub, TJ's Pub, Greensleeves Pub, Rob Roy Confusion, Martini Bar. That's where I like to go for my drinks, but by all means, go down and check it all out. Support local. If you want to grab a bite to eat, why not do it at Blue Blue on Water, Merchant Tavern, Wedgwood Cafe. That's where I like to go first and foremost for my meals, but of course, support local. Get down there. There's lots of awesome places to eat in and around St. John's. If you want to change your life, you want strength and balance for the body and mind, look no further than power conditioning on Rope Walk Lane. Strength and balance for the body and mind. Ryan Power. Power conditioning. If you're looking to go to Mr. Lube, there's two locations here. One on Torbay Road, one on M Mount Road. Live, laugh, lube, Pitbull Pain Relief, the pain sticks that just don't quit. I use them almost every day. Go to pitbullpainrelief.com. And, of course, true hockey. Take what's yours. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to 162B. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Thanks to Paul Romanuk for joining us. And we'll see you all again soon in just a few more days with more Tales with Tear. Catch you on the rebound.